I think this is week number six of not gathering together as a group to worship our God. But I trust that God is as real to us today, this morning, as he has been six weeks ago. I trust he's even more real. I'd like to ask a question this morning. How are you doing? How are we doing this morning in the in the current situation that we find ourselves in, in, in the in the times that we live in, how are we doing? Have you? I encourage you to stop, pause for a moment, and ask you that question. How are you? How are, ask yourselves that question. How are you doing? The title of the message this morning is "Fear versus Faith." I would like to look at fear and faith. The two do not get along. The two are opposites, and um, Jesus has quite a bit to say about having a being too fearful or worrying and how faith can help us to combat the fear. Are you worried, anxious, fearful? We're living in a time where things are taking place or not taking place that we wouldn't have imagined. Schools and churches, restaurants are sitting empty or at best only occupied by a few people. Business in the country, in the country's booming economy has been drastically reduced while the authority is attempt to control a virus that threatens the lives of many around the world. Frustrations are mounting. Opinions are ample. Skepticism about the seriousness of COVID-19 is growing. The future of our economy seems bleak. People fear the loss of the security of a stable society. Fear. Many people fear things even in good times. People are, scared, are fearful of a lot of things. The fear of losing a job or the fear of losing our health. We have the fear of losing our home or our position. There's the fear of not being good enough, the fear of not being accepted. There are many things. Different people have different fears. It's different for everybody. The things that affect us, the things that the things that affect our lives that we react to in fear are different for for all of us. The fear of the unknown or of really bad things happening to yourself or your loved ones. Fear is real, is, is something that the devil wants to bring into our lives to use to distract us from our real purpose of being here in this earth. And that real purpose is to bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to our Creator God. My message this morning to you is... Don't worry. And that's not my idea, not my instruction, but that comes from Jesus. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through through the end of the chapter, through verse 34. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air. For they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven... Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? 
Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We have here Jesus teaching about worry. Now we may ask ourselves the question, is it even practical for us not to worry in this life that we live? Is it even a practical requirement of Jesus to ask us not to worry? I mean, we have so many things going against us, so many challenges that we face, so many things going on. Is it even practical for Jesus to ask us not to worry about things in this life? My answer is absolutely it is. And you may ask why? And because Jesus commands us not to do it. That's the reason that it's, it's, we shouldn't do it because Jesus said, Jesus says, don't worry. Don't, don't worry about these things. Now, Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying to not have any concerns in life. I think, I think we all understand that as we go through this life, as we wake up in the morning, we know that we have to eat. We know that our family, our dependents, we have to eat, we have to wear clothes, we, have, we need a place to live. We all have those concerns. And that's okay. We need to be concerned about those things, but we need not worry we need not let those things consume our lives to the point where, where they take over, where that worry takes over. Concerns you own, but worry owns you. Concerns you own, but worry owns you. In verse 30, the end of the verse, he says, O ye of little faith. If we worry a lot, we find ourselves a fear, being fearful and worrying. We, it is, it, we find ourselves having little faith. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27 is another time where Jesus uses that term, little faith. I'll just read that right now. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now there again we might ask ourselves, was it even practical for Jesus to... to um, to look at the disciples like this. They were in the midst of a big storm. Jesus, they're the one, their leader, they're the one that they looked up to, was missing. He was sleeping. He wasn't there. And what did they do? But they went and they woke him up. And that's what they got. They got one of those, oh, ye of little faith. That's often how we look at life. Things come our way. We don't understand. But I think the thing we need to understand is, that God does understand. God is able. And I think that's why Jesus answered the way he did. Why are ye fearful? He was like, I'm right here. We're going to be okay. That's the way it is for us today. God's right here. God's going to help us. We're going to be okay. Worry is a failure to trust God. 
If worry controls you and it becomes a pattern, then you have little faith. And little faith is a result of of the size of your God. If your God is little in your life, your faith is going to be small. The size of your faith is tied to the size of your God. When you shrink God, you automatically shrink faith. And then fear, when fear gets too big, God gets too little. You, you need to, you, we need to have ourselves in a spot where God is big enough so that fear is diminished where it has no effect. So where there's no fear. Because of a small view or understanding of God. That's why we have little faith. So we say we need to get more faith. We need to get a bigger faith. How do we get a bigger faith? How do we get to the place where our faith is big enough, our God is big enough for us not to fear or not to worry about the things that come our way? You don't get bigger faith by going faith hunting or by just telling yourself that you don't need to worry. You can't wake up and say, wow, this morning I have little faith. I'm worrying a lot. I have to stop it. I have to I have to have more faith and I can't worry today. That's not really how it works. You get a bigger faith by expanding your understanding and view of and submission to God. I repeat that by expanding your understanding, view of and submission to God. God needs to be in control of our lives. We need to we need to understand God to the point where we can let him to where we're submitted to him and let him have control of our lives. How do we do that, you may ask? What is God to you? We often think of God as our creator. We've grown up, many of us have grown up, we've heard the story how God created the earth, how God created everything, how, how he, out of thin air, by the voice, by the, his command, created the world. He put the blazing sun up in the sky. He created the universe, the stars. And we look at God as this creator. And I think sometimes we look at God as more the creator and maybe unreachable to us as a human too much. We don't understand that God wants to be our father. God needs to be our father. God needs to be to us a friend and someone that we'll go to with our problems and that we trust to take care of the things that we face in life. In our home, our, our two children, sometimes they compete for the attention of their father. And it becomes, it can become contentious if the one, if I'm giving attention to the one child and not to the other, they both want my attention. One thing that we can understand, that we need to understand with God is that God is always there. Unlike an earthly father, his attention for each of us individuals is always available. God wants us to view him as a father when it comes to not worrying. God's got this. You know, it's, um, it's always available for us to talk to God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. I'm going to turn to that and read that verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He gives us instruction how to respond when worry comes our way. When we're tempted to worry, when we're tempted to have fear over something that we may or may, or that we 
that we know is coming or that we think is coming. He says in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. There's a few things in that verse. The first part of the verse is be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Be fearful for no, for nothing. Let nothing make you fearful. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, when you're tempted to be fearful, when you're tempted to worry, turn to God in prayer. Talk to God about it. And, and beg God to help you. God wants us to come to Him with our, with our issues, with our problems. God wants us to, God wants to hear from us. And then the end of the verse, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. No, I think that's probably the reason why often when we pray, we thank God. We, appreci- we, we show our appreciation to God for what he's done for us thus far. And then we ask him, you know, it, we ask him to take care of us as we go from here. So prayer is very important to us. If, is, is a very important thing to us to look at God as our father, as someone that cares about us, as someone that will help us through these through hard times in life. like to look at our focus in life. We need to get our focus on God, and it needs to be a growing focus. Our focus can't be on the things around us. Think of the story of Peter when Jesus told him to, sure, step out of the boat and walk across the water. When Peter asked him if he could, he said he, he called Peter out to him. And when Peter got his focus off of Jesus on the storm around him is when Peter sank, was when Peter went down. And we all know how the story goes. Jesus was there to help Peter up. And in that way, Jesus is still there. God is still there for us to help us up when we when we find ourselves sinking because of drawing our focus off of God. We need to keep our focus on to God, on God, who is able to calm our fears. We need to calm down. There's no need for panic when you have a heavenly father, a God that's in control of everything. We serve the same God who is the creator, who made this world, who made everything awesome and magnificent around us in this world. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that walks alongside us. That's the God that helps us through these times. That's the God that supplies our needs. We need to be calm. There's no need for panic. God's got this in control. In verse 33 of Matthew chapter 6, he speaks a bit of, of focus. And where in our, you know, we focus on a lot of things in life. Our focus is, our focus is not just on one thing. But we need to have our focus on God first of all. In verse 33 says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. This was after Jesus told them in verse 31, take there, take therefore no, take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? And in verse 33 he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God. We live in a world where I think it's easy for us to get our focus on our daily needs. Because all of our time is spent pursuing those. We're a very privileged people. We live in a very privileged land. And we have lots of opportunities. If we don't keep our focus on God, we tend to use the opportunities we have to focus on ourselves and our own needs and our own wants. I think it is something that we may battle with more here in America because of how privileged we are. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God, not second, but first. The moment we put God second, we remove him from engagement in our life. God must be priority. If you put God out of first into second, then you you don't just put him into second. God needs to be first or he's not at all. That's the way it is with with God in our lives. And we tend to think, you know, when, when I first thought of that, as, as if God is second, then he's not at all. I, it gave me pause, but I do believe that it's the way it is. If God is is second, then God, we just diminished him to something other than what he is. Therefore, how can he be? You know, I think we deceive ourselves many times into thinking that we can do that. But I think if we stop and think about it, it's probably not possible. God needs to be first in our lives. So we ask, how do we know when God is first? How do we put God first? How can we be confident that God is first in our lives? There's many different ways, I'm sure, that we could we could look at this and we could we could study this. But the one way is your decision making. When you come to it, when you have a decision that you need to make, you need to choose one way or the other way. If God doesn't if God doesn't win the choice, then God's not first. Your decision making when you need to choose what you will do or won't do. He wins the choice. If he doesn't win the choice, he's not first, no matter how often you use his name. We hear these we hear people talking about God and we hear these flowery prayers about, you know, speaking to God as the Father, and then we we um we see actions out of people's lives and and they like it's obvious that God isn't first. God needs to be first, not only in out of our mouth, but in our actions as well. God needs to win when there's a choice between one way or the other. When there's a right and a wrong, God needs to win out. God needs to have you need to give God the right way, make the right choice for God. When God gets the final decision over everything you do, that makes him first. In what? In your life, in your marriage, in your singleness. In your career, in your finances, God needs to be first. We can't compartmentalize a few things and say, well, God's going to be first here, but in these things over here, God's not going to be first. God needs to be first. If we're going to, if we're going to have faith in God, then we need to have God first in our lives. God's plans are better than yours. Do you believe that? Do we believe that God has a better plan than us? You know, it's kind of silly for us to think that we might have a better plan than what God does. Think about what God has done. Think about what God is. Think about how big and how awesome God is. And then think about what Jesus did for us. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. We went through, we thought once again of what Jesus went through for us. How he died on the cross, how he was sacrificed on the cross. He gave his life freely for us, rose again that we might have life. He conquered death for us. So it's, it's very silly for us to think that we may have a better idea than what God does for what's best for us. Don't be afraid to commit an unknown future to a known God. God has everything in control. God knows what's going to happen. So it makes it just makes good sense to commit the unknown future to a known God. Put God's kingdom first and turn your panic into prayers. If you don't want to live in fear, anxiety, and worry, 
put your concerns in the hands of God. God doesn't want to be one of many things, one of many. He wants to be prioritized over priority. We'll read that again. God doesn't want to be one of many. He wants to be prioritized over priority. Fear. God speaks a lot of fear um, throughout the Bible. There's, there's many times, many places where, where God mentions fear not. Fear not is mentioned all throughout the Bible. In Judges, I'm just going to mention a few here. In Judges chapter 6, verse 23, he tells Gideon, fear not, thou shalt not die. In Isaiah, Isaiah has some really good fear nots. Um, the prophet Isaiah, I believe, spoke to the children of Israel or Judah or whoever he was talking to at that time from God. He was speaking for God to them. And there was a lot of fear nots, for I am with thee, as they went through the, the various turmoil that they went through. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 is a fear not to the shepherds after they were frightened when the angels appeared the night that Jesus was born. And then in Luke chapter 12, verse 7, speaking to, I believe, us today even, he says, Fear not, for even the very hairs are numbered. The very hairs on our head are numbered. You know, it seems kind of impossible to number the hairs on your head. It's kind of, kind of uh, interesting terminology there that Jesus used. For even the hairs on your head are numbered. And we all know we lose hair every day, right? It's, it'd be a pretty... Un, unaccomplishable thing to know how many hair are on your head. But God's got that. That's how big he is. He knows, he, he knows everything. He's got everything in control. I think of fear versus faith and the battle that we're in. You think of a competition or a battle or a game that's played. There's an offense and there's a defense. We are, we, we are, either offensively playing to try to score or we're defensively putting up our guard and trying to keep the other side from scoring. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18. I'm just going to turn to that and read that because it's where he speaks of the the armor that we're supposed to put on. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I'm not going to get into each one of these. There's two that I would like to look at. The first one is in verse 16, above all, he says above all. He mentions a few things, but then he says more importantly than the rest of them, take the shield of faith. The shield is something when you think of a shield and a, and a um, Bible time warrior, you think of something they held in front of them to block 
the oncoming onslaught of the arrows or the rocks or whatever was thrown at them in an attempt by the enemy to overcome them. The shield of faith, the defensive weapon. We need to keep a defense. We need to keep up our defense. You think of playing an example that we're all familiar with is playing a game of softball. So we're either up, we're batting or we're in the outfield. We're we're grounding. We're taking the balls that come towards us to get the other team out. So there's a ground ball, a bouncy ground ball coming can be a challenge. But you need to have your glove, which in that case would be the shield. You need to be ready. And you need to take on those ground balls to to keep up the to play good defense. You get the ground balls and you control them. Your shield of faith allows you to control how much impact fear has on your life. And then on the offensive side, when it's your turn to bat, when you're up to bat. I would like to look at the sword of the spirit. He mentions in verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. What what is the sword of the spirit to us? I think it's allowing God to control our lives. And when we control our when we allow God to control our lives, what does that look like? I think it looks different to all of us. I have a story here that I'm going to read in closing. It's a it's a story of someone showing great compassion. And I think if we have faith, if we let God control our lives, compassion will be very real to us. It will shine out around us and God will, through us, be able to help others. Think of that. If all of us help one person a day rather than being the type of person that is fearful and needs a person of faith to help us. Think of the difference that we can make in the world that we live in. I'm going to read this story and then close with prayer. It's by Kent Nurburn. There was a time in my life 20 years ago when I was driving a cab for a living. It was a cowboy's life, a gambler's life, a life for someone who wanted no boss. Constant movement and the thrill of a dice roll every time a new passenger got into the cab. What I didn't count on when I took the job was that it was also a ministry. Because I drove the night shift, my cab became a rolling confessional. Passengers would climb in, sit beside me in total anonymity and tell me of their lives. We were like strangers on a train, the passengers and I, hurdling through the night, revealing intimacies we would never have dreamed of sharing during the brighter light of day. I encountered people whose lives amazed me, ennobled me, made me laugh and made me weep. And none of those lives touched me more than a woman I picked up late on a warm August night. I was responding to a call from a small brick fourplex in a quiet part of town. I assumed I was being sent to pick up some partiers or someone who had just had a fight with a lover or someone going off to an early shift at some factory for the industrial part of town. When I arrived at the address, the building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would just honk once or twice, wait a short minute, then drive away. Too many bad possibilities awaited a driver who went up to a darkened building at 2.30 in the morning. But I had seen too many people trapped in a life of poverty who depended on the cab as their only means of transportation. Unless a situation had a real whiff of danger, I always went to the door to find the passenger. It might, I reasoned, be someone who needs my assistance. Would I not want a driver to do the same if my mother or father had called for a cab? So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail and elderly voice. I could hear the sound of something being dragged across the floor. 
After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman, somewhere in her 80s, stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like you might see in a costume shop or a Goodwill store or in a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The sound had been her dragging it across the floor. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for many years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the corners, counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she, she said. I'd like a few moments alone. Then if you could come back and help me. I'm not very strong. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just tried to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. Her praise and appreciation were almost embarrassing. When we got into the cab, she gave me an address, then asked, Could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I should go there. He says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to go, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they had first been married. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she would have me slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired. Let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. Without waiting for me, they opened the door and began assisting the woman. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. Perhaps she had phoned them right before we left. I opened the door and took the small suitcase up to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. There was nothing more to say. I squeezed her hand once, then walked out into the dim morning light. Behind me, I could hear the door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I did not pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the remainder of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once, then driven away? What if I had been in a foul mood and had refused to engage the woman in conversation? How many other moments like that had I missed or failed to grasp? We are so conditioned to think our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unawares. When that woman hugged me and said that I had brought her a moment of joy, it was possible to believe that I had been placed on earth for the sole purpose of providing her with that last ride. I do not think that I have ever done anything in my life that was any more important. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this day you have blessed us with. We thank you for the opportunity to take a Sunday morning 
and to look into your word and to study what you are, what you are and what you want to do for us.